Hi, I'm Melissa Barnett, and welcome to this edition of Clearly KC with NKCF. I'm thrilled to have my good friend and colleague, Dr. Barry Iden, here with me today. Dr. Iden is Medical Director at North Suburban Vision Consultants and Keratoconus Specialist of Illinois, a multi-specialty group practice in the Chicago area. He is CEO and co-founder of the International Keratoconus Academy, past chair of the AOA's Cornea and Contact Lens Section, fellow of the Academy of Optometry and Scleral Lens Society, and is adjunct faculty at numerous schools of optometry and consultant to the ophthalmic industry. Barry, welcome to Clearly Casey. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here, Melissa. Thank you for inviting me as your first guest of your fantastic podcast. Wonderful. So great that you're here. We're going to talk about keratoconus, of course, on Clearly KC. Let's just start because this is a podcast for everyone. We want this to be very inclusive for people who are diagnosed with keratoconus and practitioners who help people with keratoconus. How common is keratoconus? Well, it seems like such a simple question you're asking, but it's actually quite uh, complex. The question about how common keratoconus is, or a term that we use in the medical industry would be the prevalence of keratoconus, is kind of a moving target at this particular point in time. And it really has um, been modified based upon a number of factors. So I think it behooves us to start back at the classical description of prevalence in keratoconus. And that came from a study that was conducted in the early part of the 20th century. And then that study was published in the middle 1980s. And uh, the prevalence numbers that came from that study were a prevalence of about one in 2000. And that was based upon some very basic diagnostic criterion, utilizing diagnostic technology that we would consider today to be relatively outmoded and insensitive. That would be changes in the shape of the cornea as measured by the keratometer and distortion of Myers as the doctor looks into that very simple instrument. Or another finding that they utilized was a specific type of what we call a scissors reflex on retinoscopy, which is when the doctor is shining a light to, through the pupil to assess the refractive power of the eye. So that really ended up giving us a prevalence that was relatively rare. But as technologies developed to detect keratoconus at much earlier phases, much more sensitive technologies, studies started showing much, much higher prevalence. The study that is often quoted because it really kind of opened the eyes of all of us in the field of keratoconus came out of the Netherlands a few years ago where they used much more sensitive technologies. They utilized corneal topography as part of their diagnostic criterion. And they came up with a prevalence of one in 375, which is amazingly common. It takes this disease from being a rare kind of orphan disease to a relatively common one. Many different studies have come out since, and those numbers all point to the fact that keratoconus is far more prevalent in all of the populations throughout the world than we ever thought before. What a comprehensive answer. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now, does keratoconus vary by region? Another great question. If you look at prevalent studies from different parts of the world, they do actually vary quite significantly. For example, you know, studies that come out of the Middle East 
show amazingly high prevalence rates. Study out of Israel, for example, or Saudi Arabia, these prevalence rates are really, really high. And there was a study that came out of, you know, a colder climate, for example, in Russia, where the prevalence was much, much lower. So there probably is a variability depending upon where the study is coming from. The question becomes why? I don't think we have the absolute answer. Could it be the temperature? Could it be the environment? Could it just be the genetics of that population? Hard to tell at this point. You brought up a good point about the genetics of Keratoconus. And there's been so much research that's been done lately about genetics. How do you use this information in your practice? Well, that has become a really a cornerstone of how we manage our patients with keratoconus. We know at least with great confidence that there is a significant genetic basis to the disease, no doubt about it. Some people use the term epigenetics when you're kind of interacting between the genetic impact and the environmental impact. And undoubtedly, keratoconus can be influenced by things in the environment. But I believe, and most of us do believe, that there is a basic genetic underlying element to keratoconus. So now we can actually do genetic testing in our offices. Very simple cheek swabs are taken, sent out to a lab, and a number of genes can be looked at to give us a relative risk factor genetically for the development of keratoconus. And we utilize that in the family. So knowing that it's genetically based, one of the most important things that we do, and I suggest all doctors do, and anybody who is suffering from keratoconus should always make sure that they think about this, is knowing what the family members are in their family. For example, if we have an adult, let's say, who's in their 30s that is brought to our office and has keratoconus, I will always ask them if they have children and how old are they? Because we know that the likelihood of developing keratoconus in younger individuals surely should raise our antenna of being suspicious. So for example, I had a new patient in the office today and he was in his late thirties. And I asked him after doing his exam, do you have any children? He said, actually, I do have three children, age six, 11 and 14. And I said, those kids really need to be screened for keratoconus specifically. And we talked about the in-office genetic testing. So we need to ask those questions. We need to follow up with that. And if they're you know, younger individuals, we'll see young individuals with keratoconus at the practice. We, of course, would ask if they have siblings and what their age is as well. That's such a great point. So the same is for our practice too. So every family member needs to be examined for keratoconus. And the nice thing about genetic testing is that it could be done even in babies because it's a cheek swab. So it assesses the risk of keratoconus. That's so interesting, Melissa, you mentioned that because the lead technician at our practice is married to a person with keratoconus and they have a four-year-old child. And he's already been examined by our pediatric associate at the office. And guess what? He's got a little over four diopters of astigmatism. So our antennae start going up really big time. Unfortunately, this young individual is a little bit hyperactive, but he's just about ready age-wise for us to take a swab. And we're planning on doing that very soon. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. <laughs> I think it'll be just fine. You have to let me know on that one. You have to come back and report to all of us. Yep. A four-year-old, I think, can do it. So in your practice, you have many different toys and tools to diagnose keratoconus, but what 
specific diagnostic instrumentation do you depend most on to make that diagnosis? And are there specific outcome values or metrics from these instruments that you use to determine if someone has keratoconus or if they are a suspect for keratoconus? It's are very important points to bring out about that. And I kind of refer back to a seminal paper that was published a few years ago in Cornea called the Global Consensus on the Management of Keratoconus and Ectatic Diseases. You're, of course, very familiar with it. And in that particular paper, they defined the certain particular clinical findings that must be present to differentially diagnose keratoconus from other forms of of corneal diseases or corneal findings. Two of the most important include changes to the shape of the back surface of the cornea and abnormalities of the thickness distribution of the cornea. What that means is the change in thickness as you go from the center out to the periphery. Many people think that keratoconus is exclusively associated with corneas that are thin at their central point. And unfortunately, that's not, as you know, a very good diagnostic or differentiating diagnostic finding. Many patients with keratoconus have statistically normal thin points in their corneas, and many normal non-keratoconic patients have relatively thin, thin points of their cornea. So it's really more the difference or change, rate of change in thickness from the center to periphery, as well as that back surface shape. So if that's the differentiating criterion, we need instruments that can measure that. One of the most important instruments and the one that we depend upon probably more than any other is corneal tomography. Not corneal topography, but corneal tomography. With this type of instrumentation, we're able to measure not only the front, but the back of the cornea and measure global thickness of the cornea, which allows us to determine that rate of change of thickness. You asked about certain metrics. The answer is definitely yes. Uh, and in fact, these instruments have software programs that are based on measurements of keratoconic populations, of normal populations. So you can actually get statistical analysis of normal versus abnormal or suspect as well. So many great points there. The posterior cornea is so important and measuring the corneal thickness over the entire cornea, that global corneal thickness is also really, really important. So what about in all practices? Is this press, how can we, and I would say globally as well, because we're talking about a global condition here, how can we develop affordable and sensitive technologies to diagnose keratoconus earlier than we are in primary eye care practices all over the world. This is the great challenge, and it's the gauntlet that you and I throw down to industry, don't we? For sure, the average practice cannot have access to this technology. It's not inexpensive. It's quite expensive. And I would say its distribution within eye care is relatively limited. The question is, can industry work on affordable instruments? I think they have to be multifunctional. So they can do different things for the practice, again, in an affordable way that can determine these particular findings early. I know we're going to get into this, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. The question is, why do you need to find it early, right? I mean, that's really the... Yes, the let's, let's answer that question now. Right. I think we should jump right into it. We, most of us now realize that we have technology that can stop progression of the disease. 
If we can stop progression of the disease, then the earlier we find it, the less impact negatively it's going to have on a person's vision and, of course, their quality of life. Now, before we had technologies that can do that, and of course, we're speaking about corneal cross-linking, before we had that, the disease was going to do what the disease was going to do, right? We would just correct them with contacts until we couldn't. If they needed a transplant of their cornea, they got a transplant, and that's just the way it was. But now we have the ability to dramatically impact the natural course and natural history of the disease with this unbelievable technology. And this technology is, in and of itself, it's highly effective in slowing down, if not halting progression. And now we're developing newer versions of the technique that, that are easier, safer, quicker visual recovery, all sorts of things like that, so that it becomes imperative for early diagnosis. So yes, we have to throw that gauntlet down to industry to figure a way to get in the hands of the primary eye care providers affordable yet sensitive screening technologies. Okay, industry, are you listening? <laughs> So, Barry, share a little bit more about the new developments that are coming soon for corneal collagen cross-linking. So, yes, let's start with what we've got here in the United States. There is only one FDA-approved method for corneal cross-linking, and this method is tried and true. It's been studied upon studied upon studied. It's effective and its distribution is fairly wide. And that is based on the original protocol called the Dresden Protocol, coming out of some studies in Germany, Theo Seiler and his group. And now it is commercialized by Glaucos as their eye-link procedure. This is called an epi-off, epithelium-off cross-linking procedure where the surface cells of the cornea have to be removed to allow the riboflavin to penetrate and saturate the cornea properly before UV light exposure. The advantage is that the riboflavin really gets into the cornea and does what it's supposed to do, and the outcome is excellent. The downside is slower visual recovery. During the first three months or so, vision can fluctuate because the shape of the cornea can fluctuate. There is a small but present chance of infection or inflammation or even some hazing of the cornea, even though it doesn't happen in the majority of cases at all, it's still a thing to consider. There's some discomfort for the first few days, so on and so forth. The analogy that I like to use, it's kind of like the PRK versus LASIK analogy. You know, we came out with PRK for refractive surgery years ago. It worked very effective, but going through the process was less than optimal, let's say, if you're the patient. So other techniques are being developed by numerous different groups in trying to figure out if there's ways to get the riboflavin saturated properly in the cornea without removing the epithelium. That's called epi-on or epithelium-on techniques. And there are a number of these techniques and different methodologies that have been studied and data is being actually admitted to our FDA. And I expect that epithelium-on will eventually become approved over the next few years, hopefully and will then feel maybe more comfortable in doing it in much milder cases because it's less invasive. So can you imagine making that diagnosis, let's say you have a corneal tomography finding in a young kid, maybe 10 years old or eight years old even, who has perfect 20-20 vision, but we know they have keratoconus, maybe they have family history and such, but we've documented they have keratoconus, it just hasn't gotten bad enough to affect vision. Well. 
Do we want to remove their epithelium? Do we want to take any kind of risks or do we wait? Maybe with these newer procedures, we'll feel more confident since it's less invasive to intervene at an earlier point. Excellent. That's exactly right. And hopefully it'll be here before we know it and coming soon. That's what we're hoping. I know that you're doing great work on keratoconus in the Chicago area. Please share information about what you're doing and when it's going to be published so that we can all read about it. I think you're referring to our pediatric prevalence study. Yes, um, I am. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to talk a little bit about it because we're really excited about the outcomes. You know, the International Keratoconus Academy, IKA, has always been interested in this issue of prevalence of keratoconus, knowing that we believe it's much more common in the institution of the treatment to stop progression and preserve vision. That's really our mantra. Early diagnosis, early treatment, preserve vision, good quality of life, all good things. In order for us to move the gauntlet, so to speak, forward a bit, we wanted to show that it's really common in a pediatric population. Very, very few studies have looked at pediatric prevalence of keratoconus. So what we did was we worked together with folks at the Illinois College of Optometry and the Eye Institute who were were who running a pediatric where kids from the Chicago public school system got general eye exams free of charge. Now, most of these kids were from underprivileged families. The vast majority were either African-American or Hispanic, so that we can question whether we can generalize, but I believe it really does tell us something. We actually were able to perform corneal tomography on over 2,000 children over wow. a period of time. Large population. And we then analyzed the data and applied some of the software I was referring to before. So we created various categories of either normal, let's not call it normal, let's say non-keratoconic, keratoconus suspect, and true keratoconus based purely on tomographic findings. Without getting into tremendous detail, I can tell you that our outcomes, which are now submitted into the journal Cornea for publication, and we're keeping our fingers crossed that will be accepted very soon, our prevalence rate was quite similar in numbers to the study out of the Netherlands on adults. So it is really common, at least in this pediatric population, I believe we find that to be the case in other populations as well. And again, this points to the importance of early screening, because if we're picking it up in this age group, and that age group was from three to 18, that's where those 2,000 kids were. So 2,000 plus kids, I think it was over 2,100 actually. So we're really excited for that information to come out. And again, this might be a little bit more of a push towards the development of those technologies you and I want so badly. That's excellent. I applaud you and all of your co-investigators for this wonderful research you're doing. Thank you. Fascinating. So the last question is, what is one thing, or you can say more than one, that everyone should know about keratoconus? Yes. Well, I guess we get back to the IKA mantra, right? Keratoconus is far more prevalent than we ever thought before. We have technology that, if we diagnose it early enough, can be applied to stop this disease from ever having any significant negative impact on a patient's vision and therefore their quality of life. 
and therefore early diagnosis and treatment becomes critically important. I know it sounds like I'm playing a broken record, but that's kind of my life's broken record. And that's what I spend a lot of my time kind of playing over and over and over again. That's great. And you have a few meetings coming up, don't you? Yes. So as, as many of you know, are listening in on, on Melissa's podcast. Again, I am the co-founder of the International Care to Conus Academy. By the way, Melissa is one of our medical advisory board members. Of course she is. How could we not have her? One of the things we've always wanted to do, our purpose is to help educate the eye care community about the latest developments in the management of keratoconus, both diagnostically and treatment-wise. And we've done many, many webinars. We've done print types of education. We've given talks at every major eye meeting, both optometry and ophthalmology, because so we're, um, I guess you would call it O's non-biased. <laughs> because we have optometry, ophthalmology, and all other eye care professionals involved. And, and by the way, we work very closely with NKCF, and Mary has been fantastic, Mary Pruden, in helping us work that way. So we've always wanted to do a live meeting dedicated to keratoconus. There really haven't been many, if any, dedicated keratoconus education meetings. So that being said, we actually are doing it, and it's very exciting. It's going to be held in this April, I believe the dates are the 22nd and 23rd of April in Scottsdale, Arizona at the McDowell Mountain Marriott. And the um, outline for our meeting covers so many areas of keratoconus, both from treatment and diagnosis, even into its impact on lifestyle, all the newest things in contact lenses. We even have a, a virtual session where patients with keratoconus are going to be able to log in and, and work and communicate with some of our experts. And talking about the experts, the speakers for our meeting are truly a who's who of keratoconus. So I urge those of you who are interested to consider joining us. We can have you here live. We'd love to see you live in Scottsdale, but we're also going to do a virtual component to that meeting. Well, that's fantastic. Barry, thank you so much for all of the valuable information and all the work that you do for Keratoconus. Well, thank you, Melissa. And I cannot tell you what an honor it is to be your first guest. And when you asked me to do that, my heart really warmed up. So I thank you and I thank Mary and the NKCF as well. Everybody's doing such great work. We're all in it together for the same purpose. So thank you. You're most welcome. Remember to tune in and subscribe to Clearly KC. Have a great day.